Our topic is Jehu's Halfway Reformation Condemned. Jehu's Halfway Reformation Condemned, and we're going to read from 2 Kings chapter 10, and our text will be uh, toward the end. <clears throat> now, Ahab had 70 sons in, in Samaria, and Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel and to the elders, to those who reared Abraham, saying, Now, as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons. Set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Look, two kings could not stand up to him. How can, they, how can we stand up? And he was in charge of the house, and he was in charge of the city, and the elders also. And those who reared their sons sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, we will do all you tell us. But we will not make anyone king. Do what is good in your sight. And he wrote a second letter to them, saying, If you are for me, and will obey my voice, Take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's son, seventy persons in all, were the great men of the city, who were with the great men of the city, who were rearing them. And so it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered seventy persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to, to him at Jezreel. Jehu. <clears throat> then a messenger came and told him, saying, They had brought the heads of the king's sons, and he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. So it was in the morning that he went, and went out and stood and said to all the people, You are righteous. Indeed, I have conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? Now know that nothing shall fall to the, to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said, what he spoke by his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all, the remained, all that remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel. And all his great men and his closest acquaintances and his priests until he left none remaining. And he rose and departed and went to Samaria on the way at Beth Eked of the shepherds. Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? So they answered, We are the brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen, mother. Okay, so they're on their way to meet Ahab and Jezebel. And he said, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth Eked, 42 men, and left, let none of them, and he left none of them. Now when he had departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, is your heart right, as my heart is toward your heart? And Jehoiadab answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and took him up into the chariot. Then he said, come with me. And see the zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in the chariot, and he came to Samaria. He killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Then Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. <clears throat> now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came. So there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out vestments for them. 
Then Jeho and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshippers of Baal. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jeho had appointed for himself eighty men on the outside and had said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. Now it happened as soon as he had made an end of the offering of the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and kill them. Let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out and went to the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought out the sacred pillars of the temple of Baal and they burned them. And they had broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. However, and this is the beginning of our text. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, and Hazael conquered them in all the territory of Israel. And we'll stop there. Hazael is the king of Syria. The story of Jehu, Ben-Jehoshaphat, Ben-Nimshi, who accepted the divine commission through Elijah to become the king over the northern kingdom of Israel is fascinating and very instructive. He was a commander in the Israelite army when God called him to be king over Israel. To strike down the whole house of Ahab because of the persecution of the Yahweh worshippers, the true people of God. And totally extirpate Phoenician or Canaanite Baal worship from Israel. That was his calling. To confirm the divine message, the young prophet anointed Jehu with oil immediately after delivering God's message. Okay, Elijah sends a prophet to Jehu, who at this time is simply a commander in the army of northern Israel. <clears throat> when Jehu's fellow military officers heard this divine message, they rallied together and they proclaimed Jehu king. Jehu's revolt against the dynasty and house of Ahab and Jezebel occurred around 844 to 842 B.C. And it's very interesting. He proclaims his sons will reign for four generations. Well, four generations later, Assyria conquers northern Israel and destroys it. 722. Thus we see that Jehu had a proper, lawful call of God and was given very specific tasks by God. He would be used by God to judge the house of Ahab for their persecution of the true people of God. Also, he was called upon to completely eliminate Baalism from the land, which had become the established religion in the north, and was the reason for the persecution against the worshippers of Yahweh, the only living and true God. Jay was given the task of setting up a new God-honoring political order and of thoroughly reforming the worship of Israel away from idolatry to biblical worship. 
God expected him to reestablish the true religion. Now, Jehu is instructive because although he obeyed God to a point, he refused to implement a thorough return to God's covenant law and biblical worship. And this failure to reform, to fully reform, led to the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. Now, before we carefully analyze this failure, let us first look at what he did that pleased God. So here we have something where he did obey God, he did obey what he was told to do, that the word of the Lord that came through Elijah and was delivered by another prophet, he did obey that. First, he obliterated the house of Ahab and, the, and Jezebel, who were the political source and supporters of the Baalite religion and culture. They were totally followers of Baal. They were totally behind the Baalite religion. They were chief instigators of persecution against God's true people, the remnant, the faithful. <clears throat> he killed Joram, the son of Ahab, with a bow. In 2 Kings 9, 22-24, we read, Now it happened, when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, What peace? As long as the holocausts of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. Then Joram turned and fled. He turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, Treachery! Ahaziah! Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jer Jehoram between his arms. And the arrow came out of, at his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. His body was thrown on the piece of land of Naboth the Jezreelite. And you remember who that is. That's the person who Ahab had murdered. And that's the occasion where God proclaimed judgment against Ahab and his house through Elijah. <clears throat> then he killed Ahaziah, the king of Judah, who was allied with Joram. He was married to the daughter of Jezebel, and he was allied with the paganism in the north, even though he was a southern king. He was a follower of Jezebel and was married to Adaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. After killing Ahaziah, he rode to Jezreel and made sure Jezebel was put to death. And They were behind the walls of the city, and he ordered the people to throw her down, if you don't throw her down, I'm going to kill all of you. Throw her down. They threw her down and the dogs licked up her blood. She was eaten by dogs. <clears throat> then he ordered government officials to put to death the male descendants of Ahab. So the king's son, 70 persons in all, had their heads chopped off, put in baskets, and sent to Jehu and, and Jezreel. Their heads were placed in two heaps at the gate of the city until morning. Now note what Jehu says to the people in response to putting these political Baal followers to death in 2 Kings 10, 9-11. You are righteous. Okay, what you've done is right. I know it sounds radical to us, but God is exterminating the Baal worshippers here. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? Know now that nothing shall fall to the ears of the word of the Lord which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. In other words, the word of the Lord is true. The word of the Lord has been fulfilled. You should be worshiping Yahweh, not Baal. So he sounds pretty good here. 
So Jehu killed all <clears throat> who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, and all his great men, all his close acquaintances, and his priests, until he left none remaining. And note that Jehu presents himself as following through on the labors of Elijah and Elijah. He's doing what the prophet ordered through God. I mean, God ordered through the prophet. He's following through. Now, Jehu next focused his attention on killing all the followers of Baal. And he did so by pretending that he was a much more dedicated follower of Baal than even Ahab. He said, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. Now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. He called a solemn assembly for Baal, and he made sure that all the servants of Baal were in attendance, so that there was not a man left who did not come. 2 Kings 10.21 He made sure all the worshippers of Baal were in that temple. There had to be a massive temple. This huge temple of Baal was full to the brim. Then 80 warriors were set outside of the door of the temple in order to kill every Baal worshiper. Go and kill them. Let no one come out. 1025. And they killed everyone. They broke down the sacred pillars. They burned to ashes all the wooden pillars to Baal. These are giant phallic symbols, by the way. It's a fertility cult. And then verse 28, thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. Now, let's comment about this before we get to our main text here. Modernists and neo-evangelicals, and even some regular evangelicals, have condemned Jehu as being a bloodthirsty tyrant, a bloodthirsty maniac. <clears throat> they say he was treacherous and barbaric. Some call him a usurper, a murderer, and a leader out of control. And some, under the influence of dispensationalism, even argue that the God of the Old Testament was harsh, without mercy, and cruel. Of course, such thinking is blasphemous. The God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. God, is, God doesn't change. God does, God's attributes are the same forever. They can't change. But what does the Bible say about these activities of judgment against the Baalite religion and law order? Now remember, these people were persecuting God's people. God said to Jehu regarding the things just described, Well done! Great job! I approve! In 2 Kings 10.30 we read, And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. God praised what he did, and God blessed him for what he did, because he obeyed the word of the Lord that came through Elijah. The judgment of persecutors and the execution of rank public idolaters was a thing that God himself said was good, moral, and just. I approve. It's right. For this reason, God's moral law forbids idolatry, public idolatry, and places the death penalty on open or public, the open or pr public practice of idolatry. And that's a moral law. That's not a ceremonial law. The Bible explicitly condemns religious pluralism, and the acceptance of pluralism in our Constitution is the acceptance of rank idolatry and Satanism. 
I know that everybody thinks that this is a great achievement. We're going to have, you know, the state's not going to say anything about religion. We're going to let everybody do whatever they want. Well, that's not what God thinks. God hates that. The state's supposed to bow the knee to Christ. The Constitution could have adopted a pluralism of Trinitarian, Orthodox, Bible-believing Protestant communions. But instead they adopted a universal pluralism where atheists, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, and Satan worshippers can vote, serve on juries, and hold office. And most of the people in our government now are anti-Christians. They're totally wicked. Especially the Democrats. A bunch of socialists. A bunch, bunch of Marxists. This aspect of the American Constitution is radically immoral and unbiblical and will lead to America's downfall as we are all witnessing right before our eyes. We're witnessing it. Writing in the early 1800s, James R. Wilson says, quote, It is indeed astonishing <clears throat> that in a Christian commonwealth where the great majority of... Now, he's writing in the early 1800s. Where the great majority of the citizens were attached to some Protestant church, a constitution of government could have been framed with only two very remote and indirect allusions merely to the law and the Bible. The fact demonstrates how very careful the framers were to avoid every word that might be construed in a declaration of respect to the statutes of Jehovah. And that's true. Sad to say, but that's true. A very predominantly Christian country at that time. And they decided to take the route of leaving God and Christ out of the Constitution. The Bible tells us, <clears throat> Proverbs 3, five. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. That applies to the Constitution. When Yahweh condemned Israel for setting up wicked kings, he said, They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew that and I knew it not. In Psalm 14.1, we are told, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. In Psalm 2.10-12, it says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Acknowledge Him. Worship Him. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way and his, when His wrath is kindled but a little. But blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. The God of the American Constitution is not Yahweh, it's not Jesus Christ, but we, the people. And that does not come from the Bible. The law order of the United States is not the moral law of God revealed in Scripture, but whatever the people want, and or whatever the majority of the Supreme Court arbitrarily and autonomously determines. Homosexuals? We're going to have homosexual marriage. Let's legalize it and say it's good. Okay. Abortion? One minute it's legal, the next minute it's legal. You want to kill your baby? Go ahead. We're the Supreme Court. We make the law. Not God. We do. In the American system, Jesus Christ, God, the Bible, and biblical Christianity are banished from the civil magistrate and the courts. And this situation is gross idolatry and merits judgment by God. Christianity is allowed between one's ears, and religion only exists to serve the state. Sad to say, but that's true. Professing Christians who defend the U.S. Constitution, our Constitution's religious pluralism, can only do it in three ways. One, 
and this is very common, this is Rush Dooney's tack, they argue that our Constitution is Christian. The problem with this view is that we have no Christian test, for, test oaths for office, and they admitted that back then. They, they admitted that back in the day when it happened. Or for voting, or for serving on juries. In addition, there are no explicit or even implicit recognitions of the Lordship of Christ. Yahweh is the only true and living God, and the Bible is the sole standard for truth, salvation, justice, and meaning. You know, the fact that they said A.D., which was common among everybody back then, and the fact that they, they did uh, honor the Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath is left out, you know, if you have 10 days to make a decision on something, the Sabbath is not counted. But there's no explicit acknowledgement of Christ of the Bible or any of that. It truly was pluralism for everything. All religions, including atheism, Satanism, and Islam, are to be treated in exactly the same way by the state. And that is radically unchristian and evil. So that's the first argument. We're a Christian nation. But we're not. And what we're seeing today is the logical outcome of our Constitution. Number two. One can argue, and this is very common, one can argue that the first table of the Ten Commandments, or summary of the moral law, was for Israel only, and must not be applied to people outside of the Christian church. And I remember Billy Graham preached after 9-11. They had that ecumenical service where they had a shaman and they had a Buddhist and they had a Hindu and they had a Muslim and they had a evangelical and some Roman Catholic and all this stuff up there. And he said, he would, Billy Graham would quote the Bible and he said, this is for you if you're a Christian. No. God's word applies to everybody. This kind of thinking is popular among professing Christians today, but it is totally unscriptural and irrational. The Bible teaches that the only laws that did not apply outside of Israel were the ceremonial laws and civil laws related to things unique to Israel, such as the border regulations and perhaps the method of taxation. Virtually all theologians until the rise of dispensationalism have consistently taught that all the moral laws in Scripture are universal. They apply to everything. No bestiality, no homosexuality, no adultery, no fornication, no theft, etc. That is, they apply both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And there's explicit passages, there's more than one in the Old Testament that says, this is for the Jew and for the stranger within thy gates. The moral law. Ceremonial laws, no. Moral laws, yes. If one carefully reads the prophetic books of the Old Testament, one will see that in God's proclamation of judgment upon heathen nations... And I didn't take the time to look it up. I have a whole book about this on reformedonline.com. I have a book on political polytheism showing this. I quote all the passages. He judges Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, and other nations. And one of the reasons given for the destruction by God, by the prophet, by God, is their worship of false gods. So if God doesn't mind religious pluralism, if he thinks religious pluralism is fine, and that's what he recommends for non-Jewish nations, then what is he doing destroying these nations for idolatry? Which is precisely what he does. Do Christians expect God to make an exception for America? Because God has more regard for our Constitution than he has for his holy and righteous law? Moreover, if something is a sin for an individual, 
For example, the worship of Baal or Molech or Satan or Krishna or Buddha or Muhammad or the Virgin Mary or Karl Marx. How does it cease to be a sin for a civil magistrate or for a judge in a court of law? People would never condone worshiping Baal, but our Constitution says it's perfectly fine. Go ahead. And you can still be a judge and a president and a whatever. Psalm 2 and 110 make it abundantly clear that God expects all civil magistrates to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and to obey his laws and to worship him. The desire to jettison the first table of God's law, and when I say the first table, I'm talking about the laws relating to how we're supposed to treat God. Especially the first and second commandments. Have no other gods before me. You're only supposed to worship me this way. As I command you, you're not supposed to make stuff up. These things apply to everybody. <clears throat> the desire to jettison the first table of God's moral law for the sake of defending our Constitution is not only arbitrary, inconsistent, and radically unscriptural, but it also dishonors God, for it treats laws related to how we are to act in relation to Yahweh, the only true and living God, as of less importance than the second table laws that deal with how we are to treat our fellow man. Now, sin's a sin. If you sin against somebody, you steal, or you take their lawnmower, or you sleep with the guy's wife, or whatever, yeah, that's a, that's a sin. That's terrible. But sins against God are just as heinous, actually more heinous than sins against man. Not only is a sin directly against God more serious and worthy of judgment than sins against man, who is only God's image, but the whole moral law rests upon the first commandment. You can't ignore the first table of the law. The second table rests upon the first table. The first commandment is the theological foundation and basis of all the commandments. If you don't believe in the first commandment, then the seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments don't, aren't going to mean anything to you. Remember, Atheists or secular humanists may speak of ethics or right and wrong, but without the biblical doctrine of God and creation, they have absolutely no valid or sound reason as to why one should act moral or be kind to others at all. They can talk about morality, they can steal from the Christian world and life view, but they have no reason. If we evolve from pond scum and we're just atoms randomly floating in the void, it doesn't really matter what you do. You're going to die, and the the sun's going to explode, and the, and the earth's going to get burned up, and it's going to be as though you never even existed. So who cares? They can only fall back on pragmatism, but pragmatism has not protected unborn babies from slaughter or the hundred million souls murdered by communists or society from rank, uh, the rise of the homosexual and transgendered great perversion and so on. Number three. Or one can argue that the Gentile nations are not under biblical law, but only under natural law. This is essentially what the founders of our nation did when they uh, constructed the Constitution. Because of the influence of Enlightenment thinkers, such as John Locke, they followed Enlightenment thinkers instead of the Bible. They were influenced by the Bible. They had separation of powers because of total depravity. They believe men are evil and they can't be trusted, so they do. That's why we have separation of powers. Because they did believe to an extent the Christian world and life few. But they didn't, they, had, they didn't understand you needed to bow the knee to Christ if you want a nation that's going to be blessed in the long run. Now the problem with this view is manifold. A, the expression natural law is vague, ambiguous, and often left undefined. 
Therefore, people can use the expression natural law as a smokescreen for human autonomy and ethics and civil laws. In fact, all the, all the Presbyterians I know, including the Westminster, I wrote a whole book against this guy, the Westminster out in Westminster West, he's a theology professor there. He wrote a whole book on natural law. And his natural law uh, disagrees with the Bible, on, uh, biblical ethics on several points, including homosexuality. It's a smokescreen for human autonomy. It always has been, always will be. B, natural law cannot be any different in content than the revealed law in Scripture, the moral law, for there is only one God and only one system of moral law. So even if you believe in natural law and you want to base things on natural law, if you have perspicuous revealed Scripture, they have to agree. There's one God. God doesn't have two different systems of law that contradict each other. They have to agree. Doesn't that make sense? The only difference between natural law and the moral law revealed in Scripture is that revealed law is clear, perspicuous, while natural law is often hard to correctly discern due to the noetic effects of sin. God tells us that one of the reasons he gave us a written moral law was to make it explicit that that we are all sinners and we all need to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. We need to believe in Christ for salvation, bow the knee to him as Lord. A revelational and scripturated system of law is also needed because moral positive laws, that is the universal laws required of all human beings that are not, there's, there's two types of moral law. Moral natural laws they're called, which are based on God's nature and character. God's a God of truth, we can't lie, etc., but there's moral positive laws that deal with things that God simply commands and expects all people to do. Laws against incest and so forth. They're based on what God requires of man universally. And the Puritans call this moral positive laws. They're not based on God's nature and character. They're based on God's command. But they're universal. And therefore they apply universally. You can only learn moral positive laws through reading scripture. Any laws that are supposedly based on natural law that contradicts God's moral law revealed in Scripture are unscriptural, wrong, and are really based in human autonomy. The point that must be made here is that any nation which possesses special revelation, yet deliberately sets that revelation aside for some undefined concept of natural law, which, since the late 1800s, is a purely positivistic law order, is in deep rebellion against God. And all these Christian guys I know, and I know Reformed guys like this, they appeal to natural law because they don't want to submit to biblical law because they find biblical law offensive, and especially the first table of the law. I know, a, I know an OPC minister, this is the late 70s, he was brought up on charges by one of the elders because he was preaching the authority of God's moral law for society. And the guy said, oh, you're, that's nat- we've got to follow natural law, that's terrible. Well, no, it's not terrible. God's approval of Jehu's actions in destroying the Baalite political and religious leaders and their followers is also seen in his reward that he bestows upon the house of Jehu. Jehu Yahweh promised him that his children would sit on the throne of Israel through four generations. His house would rule for almost 120 years. God rewarded him for obeying his command. So if he, what he did was wrong or immoral, what is God doing praising what he did and giving him a reward? 
So what he did was not malevolent. It was not excessive. It was not too bloodthirsty. God would have made, if God regarded these things as sinful, he would have made that clear and he would have condemned him. So all these commentaries and all these ministers, oh, he's a terrible bloodthirsty guy. What a terrible guy. They're contradicting the text. God praised him and God blessed him for doing exactly what Elijah had prophesied. God rewards those who obey his commands. Unlike Saul, who in the war against the Amalekites disobeyed God's command and spared Agag, the king, and the best of the cattle, Jehu totally exterminated the Baalites in Israel that God had doomed to destruction. Okay, so that's our context. Had to bring it up. Now let's look at Jehu's sin and failure. Although we have seen that Jehu was rewarded for his destruction of the Baalites, his reward was actually limited because his obedience to God's law was only partial. And this is the main lesson of our text. In 2 Kings 10.31 we read, But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. Now the word heed, shamar, means to keep, watch, watch over, take care of, guard, attend to. Jehu was zealous to stamp out the Baalites and fully attended to it. Good job. But he was unwilling to fully or completely obey the whole law of God and eliminate the corrupt idolatrous worship instituted by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He's the one who set up the two worship centers, Dan and Bethel, set up his own priesthood, etc. His reform of the nation only went halfway, and therefore he was condemned by God. He was willing to obey a direct verbal order given to him by a prophet, but he was unwilling to study the written and scripturated law of God and implement it in the northern kingdom. And that's what God expects. God expects every political leader, every judge, to obey the, his law. The civil magistrate has a moral responsibility to learn the whole law of God. In Deuteronomy 17, 18, the king is required to acquire, he's required to acquire a copy of the whole law of God made from the original manuscripts possessed by the priests and the Levites. It's right in there. He is required to, and this is a quote, this is verse 19, to read all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord as God and be careful to observe all the words of the law and these statutes. So he has to acquire a copy of the Bible. He has to read the Bible diligently and study it his whole life. He is not to be filled with pride and depart from the law, either to the right hand or to the left hand, Deuteronomy 17.20. The king must possess the law. He must carefully study the law. He must faithfully implement the whole law. He cannot plead ignorance, and he must not act with pride in placing extra-biblical consideration above God's law. There is to be no pragmatism, no compromise, no syncretism, and no partial obedience. That's what the Bible says, very clearly. He followed the worship instructions, the worship innovations of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So he did not implement a true reformation or a return to covenant faithfulness, but it was a return to the status quo. Yeah, he got rid of the really gross Baalite worship, but that's all he did.
Jeroboam, of course, was guilty of adding four minor innovations to what God's law required. Number one, he erected two new worship centers in the northern, one in the northern kingdom, one at Dan in the north, and another in Bethel in the south. Why was that wrong? Well, God had commanded Israel, there's one place to go for this worship, and that's Jerusalem and the temple. You're not to make up your own worship centers. You have to obey what I said. Go to Jerusalem. That's where you go. Why didn't Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, want to go to Jerusalem? Because he wanted to have his own separate kingdom and his own separate religion from Jerusalem. He wanted the power, the political power. Number two, Jeroboam set up a new method of worship using golden calves. They believed that Yahweh's presence was above each calf, or the calves represented Yahweh's power. All this, this was not as blatantly idolatrous as worshiping Baal. It was still syncretistic and a form of idolatry. This corruption <coughs> led to Baalism, because once human autonomy and invention is allowed in the worship, the natural tendency of sinful men is to add innovation to innovation. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat's syncretistic religion, his false religion, and the two new worship centers led to the more gross idolatry of worshiping Baal. Number three, he made priests from every class of society who are not from the sons of Levi, 1 Kings 12.31. This action was also designed to keep Israel's religion and system of worship separate from that of Judah. And archaeologists have proved that the Levites in the north were persecuted and their cities were burned and they were forced to move to the south. Number four, Jeroboam set up a holy day that was not commanded by God. He made up the time of this day as well. Jeroboam's abundant use of human innovation, invention, tradition, autonomy in worship is presented throughout the Book of Kings as the very paradigm of unfaithfulness and idolatry. Remember, in worship, what are we supposed to do? Don't add to, the, don't add to what I've commanded you. Don't detract from it. Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy 12.32, a couple places in the Proverbs, of course, we find a couple places in Jeremiah, First Kings, Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, of course, Jesus in the Gospel of John, Jesus in Matthew and Luke, and so forth. Over eighteen times in First and Second Kings, the kings of Israel are explicitly condemned for following Jeroboam's innovations. Over eighteen times. Let's consider what Jehu did that was wrong. First, he made no effort whatsoever to know the will of God by learning God's Torah, his law word. If we look at the great reformations in the southern kingdom, there were none in the north, but they had some in the south, under Asa, Jehoiada the priest, Hezekiah, and Josiah, we see an effort to implement what the whole word of God says about worship. And in one case, they found the law of God in the temple. And they read it and they go, wow, we're not doing this. (laughs) And they had a reformation. The law is read. And true repentance and reformation seeks to obey the whole law. All human traditions, all human additions and innovations are thoroughly cast aside because Yahweh only accepts what he himself has authorized in his word. Jehu was happy and zealous to kill Ahab's whole family, and all the Baalites, and all the priests, Baalite priests. And he took great care in extirpating the Baalites. 
but he was uninterested in learning the whole counsel of God. He was not careful to obey and implement the covenant law because he did not care about God's word. And that is tragic. So there's an important lesson here for all of us personally and for the church corporately. First of all, do we read and study the Bible so we know the whole will of God? That's important. How am I going to know what sin is unless I study what the law of God is? How am I going to know what pleases God if I don't know what God says in his word? And a lot of sin and a lot of crazy things are going on in the church today, especially among evangelicals, because people don't know their Bibles. Multitudes of professing Christians today do not read their Bibles at all. And they are not really interested in knowing all about what Yahweh the Creator has to say about reality or about ethics for sanctification or about doctrine. They don't want to know any details. They don't want to know about the doctrine of salvation even. They are far too busy watching television and watching clips on the internet. Millions of professing Christians treat the Bible, which is the infallible word of God, with a very wicked and dangerous neglect. The neglect not only leads to a great self-imposed immaturity, the adoption of heresies and syncretistic practices, but also helps corrupt the church at large. When you've got a people, like in the First Reformation, the Second Reformation in Scotland, where people are totally interested in learning what the Bible says. They're totally interested in learning about biblical worship. They're totally interested in understanding theology and even back then church government. When somebody comes in and preaches heresy, what happens? They get thrown out on their ear. When most people in the church are very ignorant of their Bibles as well as doctrine and the proper authorized practices, they are overly dependent on the pastor or teaching elders. If the teachers of the church begin corrupting doctrine and worship, the people go right along with it. <coughs> this happens over and over again. Doug Wilson adopts the federal vision, which is totally heretical nonsense. What happens? Out of a, He's got a giant church. He's got like almost 1,000 people, 700 people, something like that. What does he lose? A couple families. That's it. They go right along with it. He's the pastor. He knows better than I do. Moreover, when the people become corrupt, they place pressure on the elders of the church to become corrupt or to accept the new innovations. Among Presbyterians in the 17th and especially the 1800s, the corruptions in doctrine usually began among preachers and seminary professors. The acceptance of modernism, the acceptance of higher criticism and all this garbage where they said the Bible shouldn't have authority, the Bible's full of mistakes. But corruptions in worship usually began with the people. And they put pressure on pastors and elders to go along with the new innovations. Hey, we want Christmas. These, even, these Baptists over here are celebrating Christmas. We want Christmas. Hey, these people are singing hymns. Why are we just singing psalms? We want hymns too. They're using organs and pianos and, and orchestras. We want that too. And the pastors give in. It happened. Historically, that's what happened. This process begins a vicious cycle where true reformation becomes very difficult from a human perspective because reformers are not desired and are not hired once the innovations are broadly accepted. When I candidated, this is back this is 30 years ago, when I candidated in the RPCNA 
and the, the elders would find out, my wife remembers this very well because we were at this church and we could hear everything the elders were saying there in the room next door. This guy's a kook. He doesn't celebrate Christmas. We can't hire this guy. Now, why can't they hire this guy? Christmas isn't in the Bible. It's not commanded. In fact, it's a lie. He wasn't born in December. We don't know the day he was born, but we know he wasn't born in December. He wasn't born in the middle of winter because his ministry lasted three and a half years and he died in the spring. He had to be born in the fall of the year. We can't hire this guy. He's a kook. The great ease, which whole churches and even denominations, the Reformed Episcopal Church, accepted the federal vision heresy is an excellent example of this principle. If people have their act together and they know the Bible, what do they do? They don't hire pastors that are bad. They fire ones that are bad. You got a pastor and he's celebrating Christmas? He should be fired. You got elders that are celebrating Christmas and are teaching the federal vision? They should be fired. They should be defrocked immediately. We must understand that with serious, practical, biblical Christianity, everything begins with a knowledge of what the scriptures teach. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to bring us to Christ and then teach us how to live and how to worship. How? From the Scriptures. Sola Scriptura. Consequently, anyone who teaches that doctrine is unimportant or that being very specific about what the Bible says regarding worship or church government is legalistic is being anti-Christian in their thinking and speech. I hear this all the time. Oh, you don't celebrate Christmas. You're legalistic. No, legalism is when you impose your own ideas on the Bible and you force people to do it. Legalism is not simply saying, well, I'm only going to do what the Bible tells me to do. I'm not going to make, I'm not going to follow human traditions. I'm not going to follow some Roman Catholic stuff. I'm not going to follow some pagan stuff that, because people like it. That's not, that's not uh, legalism. Legalism is when you impose, legalism is celebrating Christmas. That's legalism. And then putting pressure on to celebrate Christmas. Jehu as king had a moral responsibility to know the word of God and then implement it. Ignorance is never accepted as an excuse by God, especially when one possesses the word of God. God expected Jehu to completely remove the false worship of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and he refused. There are actually a lot of professing Christians today who deliberately choose to be ignorant. And I've seen this. They have the idea that if they do not know the truth or all the details, then they have an excuse for their unbiblical behavior. They choose to be stupid. They choose to be uninformed, immature, and much, and much less sanctified because they do not want their unbiblical theology or bad behavior or false worship exposed. I remember I was an OPC minister. And I said, hey, you want a copy of my Christmas book? No, 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 I don't want to read that. I don't want to read that. I like Christmas. I don't want to know. I don't want to see the arguments against it. I like Christmas. Don't don't give me that book. I won't read it. I've seen that with ministers. No, I don't want to see that. I like Christmas. We love it. Such people are living in self-deception. They are choosing to ignore God's will, and ignoring God's will is rebellion. If we are really serious about our faith, sanctification, and spiritual growth, then we must seek to be as knowledgeable and informed as possible. If you are doing something that is offensive to God, do you not want to know about it so you can repent and do the right thing? You should be willing to search yourself according to the scripture. You must be willing to read books and hear strong sermons that inform you 
about your sins and your departures. Do not be like the Jews who sought out preachers who told them what they wanted to hear. Such preachers are described in Jeremiah 6, 13b and 14. For from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. What do they do to Jeremiah? They threw him in a pit. They wanted him dead. They didn't want to hear his message. They wanted to hear the false prophets who told them what they wanted to hear because they didn't want to repent. Today, among supposedly Reformed denominations and churches, we have Puritan conferences and we have Puritan discussion groups. There is even a so-called Puritan seminary in Michigan, which is not Puritan at all, by the way. But the supposed admirers of the Puritans actually despise and repudiate their views on worship that are not thoroughly biblical and approved by God. They will not repent of their corruptions because they love their human traditions. And they have a lot more in common with Jehu than they think. Are you going to be like Jehu or are you going to obey the scriptures? Therefore, let us, let us study to show ourselves approved. Let us sit at the feet of Jesus, the Son of God, and learn his doctrine, his ethics, his approved worship. Lord, what do you want me to do? Carnal, ignorant Christians have corrupt, undisciplined lives and corrupt, humanistic, worldly, unacceptable worship because they do not care to learn what God really wants. And they don't want to know. They don't want to know. We are not asserting that knowledge is enough. True biblical knowledge is only the starting point, the beginning. There must be a willingness to put biblical knowledge into practice. If Jehu did not know what to do, due to his carelessness and indifference to Scripture, he certainly knew after God rebuked him for refusing to get rid of the worship innovations of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He didn't repent. He didn't repent, and the north would be destroyed by Assyria, completely destroyed. Second, Jehu greatly erred in that he did not hate all sin as God hated sin. Jehu would probably say, look, I hate idolatry. See how I have destroyed the images of Baal, the sacred poles, and the priests of Baal? I have totally eliminated Baal worship from Israel. But Jehu still adhered to the sins that he regarded as necessary and acceptable. He loved the worship offered through the golden calves. He regarded the human traditions added by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, as fully acceptable, and he was unwilling to get rid of them. For him, some sins are acceptable as long as the traditions and additions have long been accepted among the culture and society. That was his attitude. And we tragically find this kind of thinking among modern conservative Presbyterians. Sinful behaviors regarding the second table, such as fornication or lying or theft or adultery or unlawful violence, are not accepted at all in reform circles. They're not accepted. Such things are rightly identified as wicked, and thus they are not tolerated for a moment. But sins of the first table, or sins relating to worship, are for some reason acceptable today. People make excuses for such sins. We are told that the church was corrupted in some areas long ago, and there's really no, nothing we can do about it. There's nothing one can do. So there's no point in rocking the boat. There's no point in causing friction. Don't disturb the peace of the church. Don't rock the boat. The church has already been corrupted. Just leave it the way it is. We must accept those corrections as they are. No church is perfect. Besides, church courts uh, 
have already accepted all these departures from Scripture, the Westminster Standards and the Directory of Worship. Their attitude is, come on, man! No one takes the regular principles seriously anymore. The churches have ruled. They've accepted these corruptions. Don't rock the boat. I'm serious. That's the attitude today. You're being divisive if you expect the church to keep its covenants and reformational attainments. And the theonomy movement, I think, is a perfect example of this, this principle, of this Jehu philosophy. We expect, they say, the civil magistrate to carefully adopt and implement the whole moral law of God, the Ten Commandments and all the moral case laws into their law order. If we allow human autonomy, we have statism. And you know something? The theonomists are right. That is true. The moral law of God, the whole moral law of God, including the case laws, ought to be adopted to the best of our ability, ought to be applied to our laws. Then you're not going to have abortion. You're not going to have sodomite marriage. You're not going to have all this crazy stuff. And they're right. But regarding worship, they say, we should be able to do anything we want. That regular principle stuff is legalistic and far too restrictive. If you want man-made holy days and liturgical dance and the sign of the cross and some incense, go right ahead. And that's the philosophy of James Jordan and David Shilton and most of the theonomists. Antinomianism with regard to worship, but they want the state to be strict. But worship can be corrupted. It's no big deal. That's their attitude. The church has the authority, they say, to act like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. James Jordan, David Chilton, Steve Schlissel, Doug Wilson, and the OPC and PCA have rejected the regular principle for the philosophy of Jehu, the son, and the, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Have you replaced God's inspired psalms for non-commanded human hymns? Do you celebrate the non-commanded, popish, pagan, untruthful, the lie, Christmas celebration, which is pagan to the core, and it's a lie, Christ was not born in December, and we're commanded to celebrate the whole work of Christ every Lord's Day? Have you implemented the priests and Levites ceremonial temple worship by incorporating musical instrumentation in your worship? In the Old Testament, you had to play only certain instruments, and you had to be a Levite to play those instruments, or a priest. They're clearly ceremonial. They weren't even accepted in, in the Roman Catholic Church until almost the 12th century. And they weren't accepted by Presbyterians until the 1880s. Have you replaced real wine and communion, which Jesus himself commanded us to do and used? For Welch's grape juice to please legalistic Jeroboam's? That's sinful. If you're using wine in communion, that's sinful. And if you're in a church and they're serving, uh, I mean, excuse me, grape juice, if they're serving grape juice and not real wine, don't take communion in that church. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's legalism. That's wrong. It has to be real wine. Have you incorporated entertainment and performances into your worship to please our culture? when God has never commanded such things. If any of these things are true, then you are following the spirit of Jehu. Do you call yourself a Puritan when you really hate the Puritan position on worship? Do you call yourself a confessional Presbyterian when you've abandoned the Presbyterian standards long ago? 
what happens in reform circles is that human traditions have corrupted the worship of God for so long that these corruptions have been accepted constitutionally by denominations and these sins, these clear violations of sola scriptura, are accepted as perfectly normal. People have become accustomed to sin and declension, and they accept unbiblical practices which are a form of rebellion against God as perfectly acceptable. And what our text tells us, it ought not to be so. I don't care if uh, Christmas goes all the way back to like 350 AD. goes way back. I don't care. I don't care. Hymns in the Presbyterian circles go all the way back to the late 1700s doesn't matter how old something is. If, if it's not commanded, if it's not authorized by Scripture, it's a sin. Beloved, this principle, this acceptance of declension and sin is totally unbiblical and unacceptable. The original Presbyterians called Covenanters and the original Puritans had a completely different attitude than modern Presbyterians. The Presbyterians made corporate ecclesiastical and social covenants to solidify the attainments of the First and Second Reformations in Scotland. And if you departed from these attainments, you could not hold office in the church and you would not be served communion until you repented. They would have communicating relations with non-covenanted, less-reformed bodies, for example, the Dutch. But they did not have fraternal relations with such bodies. They would have been appalled at the rank irrationality and hypocrisy of Napark. A minister in the OPC or PCA who openly rejected the regular principle, an a cappella exclusive psalmody, could never be accepted as a minister in the RPCNA without first repenting of his unbiblical view. And that's the way it should be. But because of all these communions, our members of Napark... He could preach and serve communion in the RPCNA. Do you see how irrational that is? That doesn't make any sense at all. We, they would never make him an elder. They would never make him a minister, or they shouldn't make him an elder. There's a lot of elders in the RPCNA who don't believe in exclusive psalmody. But he should never be, they'd never make him a minister. Yet he can come and preach in their church and serve communion. Does that make sense to you? There are also ministers in the PCA and OPC who have denied justification by faith alone. So on the one hand, the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America teaches that uninspired hymns and musical instruments in public worship are violations of the regular principle. They are unscriptural and they are wrong. But on the other hand, the RPCNA implicitly teaches that such things are really no big deal. We fully embrace communions who violate the scriptures on worship and repudiate our standards and corrupt the worship of God and reject our covenants. That's fine with us. That's what they're saying. That's totally fine with us. You can preach in our churches. You can serve us communion. These are sins that we accept as no big deal whatsoever. They have abandoned the covenant reformation and therefore are covenant breakers. But we fully accept covenant breakers and worship corruptors into our pulpits. That's the RPCNA. What this means logically is that the RPCNA really does not adhere to the regular principle, the standards, or the covenants, and they, by their actions, teach that these sins on the first table of law are acceptable sins. Another example, of course, is Joel Beakey. He's got a Puritan seminary, I forget what it's called, it's Puritan something seminary up in, in Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan. I know a group of people that were fed up with the RPCNA in Phoenix, Arizona, 
this is a long time ago, so he, he might, might, might have changed. I don't know what he's doing lately. They applied to his denomination and said, look, we would like to join you. Because they're, you know, obviously much more strict on feminism and different things. And We'd like to join you guys, but we will not celebrate the holy days because they're not commanded in Scripture. And they were told, you cannot join us unless you celebrate these holy days. They are commanded by our denomination. You have to celebrate them. So the so-called Puritan, Joel Beakey, persecuted the real Puritans. They forbid the real Puritans from joining them. They, it, it, in essence, it's a form of excommunication. They're saying, we cannot have you worship with us because you will not accept our human traditions. And that man calls himself a Puritan. And he calls a seminary a Puritan seminary. That is a farce. But he's the acceptable Puritan of the OPC and the PCA and the RPCNA. Because he's not a Puritan. He's an anti-Puritan. And that's why he's so popular. Now, is he doing great things? He's publishing great stuff? Yeah. His stuff on sanctification, I've read most of his books. They're, they're very good. But don't call him a Puritan. Be honest. He's an anti-Puritan. Am I saying that the violations of the regular principle in the OPC, PCA, and RPC in error are as bad as J.O.'s acceptance of the Golden Calves at Dan and Bethel? No, I am not. There are different degrees of sin, and the scandalous idolatry of the Golden Calves is much, much worse than singing uninspired hymns and celebrating a man-made holy day. But violations of the regular principle are still violations of the second commandment in Sola Scriptura. They are still wrong. They are still sinful. Unlawful lust in the heart is not near as bad as committing the act of adultery or an act of homosexuality. But according to Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, it is still a sin. And it's wrong. What we should learn from Jehu's great error and not carrying through on a complete thorough reformation is that we must never make peace with any sin. No matter how long these sins have been accepted by human traditions or no how inconsequential we think the sin may be. You know, our, our, our attitude should not be to the Word of God, well, these sins are mellow. You know, I'm going to accept these sins, but these more serious things, I'll, I won't do that. I'm not going to go bow down to the Virg statue of the Virgin Mary, but I'll corrupt the worship over here. That's not, shouldn't, it's an unbiblical attitude. We must always hold ourselves strictly to God's standard and not accept areas of disobedience because the disobedience is popular, common, or considered acceptable by political or religious authorities. One can have communicating relations with corrupt, backslidden, reformed denominations, but one should make it very clear that fraternal relations and the exchanging of pulpits and serving each other communion cannot take place without repentance and the breaking, uh, keeping the covenants, which according to Scripture are still binding. The covenants are binding. They're biblical. And they have, they have a descending obligation. If you don't believe me, read my book on covenanting. I prove it. They're binding. <clears throat> modern Jews are the, the acceptable pastors and scholars today, while modern Hezekiahs and Josiahs are seen as unloving, unreasonable fools. This is an important topic that is deliberately avoided today because people love and defend their human traditions tooth and nail. You know, there's a magazine, the Presbyterian magazine on the, the it's got, what is it called, the Confessional Presbyterian? And, and almost all the writers in there are unconfessional and are violating the covenants, and are violating the confessions. We live in a day when it's a total farce. It's dishonest. Let's admit our sins and repent. 
Now, our text deals with corporate worship and the tolerance of human traditions. But there also is a personal application that we must pay attention to. In our personal sanctification, are we being diligent in rooting out everything against God's will, or only are we only going so far and hanging on to certain sins we do not want to give up? Do we struggle and fight to obey the whole counsel of God? Are we committed to obedience in all respects? Or do we have a proud disobedient spirit of Jehu, who says, I will obey this, but I will not obey that? If we are not willing to submit to Christ in everything that he requires, and therefore we can uh, make peace with certain sins, then we need to question the reality of our faith. I'm not saying it's always easy. There's going to be struggles. But you never make peace with sin. We are saved by faith totally apart from our own works. But if we refuse to fully repent and are harboring behaviors that are clearly forbidden in God's word, then we must fully repent at once or we do not have the fruits of faith and repentance that the Bible requires. Okay, so you you got to get rid of those things. You just got to get rid of them. And follow Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. Put that off, put on this. Sin has always been a problem in the church. And the Bible tells us how to deal with sin. Christian sin, and I am not proclaiming some kind of perfectionism, but true Christians also repent and confess. They do not make up autonomous pragmatic arguments as to why some sins are acceptable. And then third, and I'll be very brief because this is kind of long. Third, the path to covenant blessings and perseverance only comes through a full obedience to God's law word. Very clearly implied in our passage. While it's true that Jehu ruled for a full 28 years, and his house ruled almost 120 years, his lack of full obedience brought covenant sanctions, and in the end, full apostasy and destruction on Israel. Now, you might disobey the word of God. You might have corruptions in worship, and that might grow your church for a while. You might have a bigger church. People like entertainment. People like corruptions. People like their Christmas and all these things. And it might grow the church for a while. But in the end, it will bring destruction. Note 2 Kings 10.32. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. And Hezael, that's the leader of Syria, conquered them and all the territory of Israel. This happened in Jehu's own day. Because they were not willing to fully keep God's covenant law. God judged them and cut them short in lands, wealth, and power. Hezael, the king of Syria, was a constant thorn in their side. A careful obedience to all that God requires brings great blessings. But declension and the refusal to fully obey the covenant brings curses. And these curses become more evident over time. A Presbyterian denomination that backslides and allows corruptions in worship must of necessity, number one, break their covenant vows. Yes, the biblical covenants of our spiritual forefathers are still binding because they are still biblical. Number two, they must resort to a form of loose subscriptionism because unity and being big are placed over truth and fidelity to scripture. Loose subscriptionism historically has always resulted in progressive declension over time. And if you want to read a great book, it's probably not even in print anymore, but it's probably free on the internet. Gary North's book on the decline of the Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA, and its apostasy. It's like 1,200 pages. It's, it's a good read. Three, they must defend the corruptions in worship doctrine and practice in order to keep up with their human traditions. The defense of corruptions always follows declension because corruptions never arise out of a faithful exegesis of Scripture. 
the arguments against exclusive psalmody, the arguments for the use of musical instruments, all these things arose after declension to justify current practice. Why are we doing this? And then men come up with uh, excuses. And then four, they must condemn the biblical confessional position because they cannot stand to have reformers point out the declension. Okay, you want to not get a job in, in these denominations? <laughs> be thoroughly reformed. Be a real Puritan. You won't get a job. What happens is that things may seem great for a time, and the church may grow, but in the long run, over generations, there will be a, this will be a spiritual disaster. Corporate sanctification is like individual sanctification. If compromises with sin and declension are made, things progressively get worse, not better. So we need to all repent. I know this stuff's very unpopular. So let us apply the lesson of Jehu's great error both individually and to our own lives and corporately to the visible church. Reformation and spiritual progress cannot occur until we see our error, admit our error, admit that we are wrong, and repent. Repentance cannot occur when people justify their sin and declension because they love it and they refuse to repent. An OPC minister. Oh, I'm not going to read that. I don't want to know if this is wrong or not because I like it. And I've, I've heard that more than once. No, what does the Bible say? If we're doing something and it's wrong, we should know about it and repent. Even if we don't want to. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the example you've set before us in Scripture. It is very tough in our day of widespread apostasy and declension. But it's your truth, and we have to bow the knee to it, Lord. Bend our hearts. Illuminate our minds. Cause us to obey your holy word, Lord. For it is truth. Help us to obey your dear Son and to love him more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.